Today's podcast is brought to you by Pillar Performance. Pillar is a product I've been using for quite some time now, so I'm absolutely thrilled to be partnering with them in the coming months. Pillar is a sports micronutrition company that has developed products that intersect between pharmaceutical intervention and sports supplements for athletes. Pillar's mission is to get athletes to the start line in the best condition over and over again. My go-to product personally from them is their triple magnesium, which has been a game changer for my sleep and recovery. It uses a high dose of glycinate magnesium, and I take it 30 minutes before bed each night. Where Pillar differs from other micronutrition you may have taken before is the tangible and measurable results you'll see on your fitness wearable. I personally wear a Koros, and I've been able to see a significant increase in my REM and deep sleep, which has been a game changer in my training. As sleep is so important for every human, especially athletes, this product is a no-brainer for me. If you guys would like to try Pillar today, head over to pillarperformance.shop or or for my U.S. listeners, head to thefeed.com slash pillar and enter code Dominic for 15% off. That's Dominic for 15% off all first-time purchases. I have also left a link in the show notes and can't wait to see you guys try out this product. I freaking love it. Before we hop into today's episode of the podcast, I want to tell you guys about someone I've been partnering with over the past few months. The name of the company is 2Before, and if you guys are looking to take your training to the next level, 2Before is the right product for you. 2Before is blackcurrant powder, and blackcurrants are antioxidant berries grown in New Zealand. Studies have shown that consuming them regularly improves endurance by increasing blood flow and removing lactic acid. It's used by professional running team Tin Man Elite, as well as teams in the NFL, NBA, and the NCAA. There was one study that showed that using 2Before consistently can improve your athletic performance by 4.6%. And so as I look to close out this fall on a high note with my training, as well as get in some really quality training this winter, 2Before is going to become a staple pre-run, pre-workout. I absolutely love this stuff. I've worked with 2Before for a long time. For this reason, it's become a staple in my daily training and life routine. Because of that, you guys can get 30% off at 2Before with code the Running Effect 30 Not only does this get you guys 30% off, but also free shipping. And I've left a link in the show notes. Again, highly recommend this product. And I definitely recommend at least trying it out once and seeing if it works for you. Camille Peisner, this one has been a long time in the works, but I'm also kind of happy because, you know, you're an awesome guest to kick off 2024 with. So how are you doing this morning? Oh, thank you, Dom. I am great. Super excited and honored to be here. And yeah, happy New Year's. First question for you off the bat. Uh, we just had Christmas and New Year's. Any uh, traditions in the Peisner household that are you're particularly oh fond of or enjoy the most? Yeah, I'm a huge tradition girl. Um, like an extreme tradition person, um, super sentimental and everything has to have meaning for me. But we, my family, all the women on the 23rd, we come together and we make an insane amount of cookies. Um, we've pared down like over the years, but when I was growing up, like thousands of cookies we'd make. Oh my um, gosh. And our signature is an Italian meatball cookie. And confession, I've actually never had it because I don't like chocolate. So I've never taken a bite, but I've probably made thousands and thousands of Italian meatball cookies in my life um and so the 23rd we do that and then um the 24th we serve it we have a big uh little party big little I know it's kind of like a um oxymoron but (laughs) we have some people over to my grandma's house on Christmas Eve and we serve our cookies so that's our 
our tradition. I have to ask. It's called the Italian meatball cookie, yet it's chocolate. Explain the yeah. origin of name. I no. I I mean, your guess is just as good as mine. <laughs> I think so. They're like round, like they are um, the shape of a meatball. So I think that's where the meatball comes in, and then Italian. I just have always I grew up just believing that it's because. We are Italian, and it's like an Italian recipe from the Italian side of our family. But yeah, no, no good answer for you there. We might have made it up, for all I know. We were gonna have a good comp for those that don't. This podcast has been like so many months in the making. I feel like it's just fallen <laughs> through a bunch of times, but it's all God's timing. So um, I trust mm -hmm. that we're meant to talk on January second, two thousand twenty-four. With that. I think naturally, like, you know me well enough. I just kind of like to have conversations. I'm not too structured with that. Obviously, New Year's is at the forefront of my mind. So I want to ask you a few questions. Just get your take on it um, in regards to the new year. Thoughts on New Year's resolutions? What are your thoughts on it? And how do you kind of approach a new year in terms of personally setting goals? Are you into that? Are you not? What are your thoughts from a societal perspective? Ooh, great question. I First of all, I'm a big proponent of the growth mindset and just having a mentality that you can improve yourself. And I think that comes from growing up in a sort of tracking field. So of course, PRs and improvement, that kind of thing. So I'm a fan of New Year's resolutions. Um, for me personally, I don't set goals. Um, I don't write out goals, but I typically choose a word of the year. And this, it doesn't necessarily always happen on a calendar year. Um, sometimes it's like the season of life that I'm in, but I'll just pick a word that I want to embody my life. Um, and usually it is like the most, like the last four or five years I've chosen um, a word from the Bible or just something that has spiritual significance. So this year for me, I am choosing the word dwell. Um, and it comes from Psalm 37.3. It says, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. And so, and also from Isaiah 43, 18 through 19, um, the word dwell shows up again. Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I'm making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. And so that is God's promise to the Israelites as they're in the wilderness. And so as they're waiting in the season of like essentially wilderness and knowing that God has a promise for them, but being stuck in the middle and like waiting for that promise, they are told to uh, forget the former things, which at first was confusing for me because God also tells the Israelites and urges them consistently to remember all his faithfulness in the past. And so that's what kind of the past like three, four years have been in my life is looking at God's past faithfulness to walk in trust in the future. Um, and so now forget the former things. And for me, it's like, forget the PRs that I ran in high school, forget the times, bad times I ran in college. Like this is a new year. I'm forgetting the former things. God is doing something new. Um, he is making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. And so I that's my belief for my track season and for my 2024. And then going back to that Psalm, taking delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Um, and really dwelling in the land to me means I'm a junior. Um, I'm going to apply to my master's program this year. This is like my 2024 is like the last part really of college. And so I want to dwell in the land, enjoy it, 
establish roots because I want to really look into the future and think that like I'm, I'm a planner, I'm a preparer. I just like, I love looking into the future because I'm so passionate about my goals and I'm so excited to chase after them. So sometimes it's easy for me to not be present. And so my other goal for 2024 in terms of dwelling in the land um, is just like plugging in, like establishing roots in the present and not being so ready for the next best thing. So that is my my take on New Year's resolutions. Isn't New Year's resolution, it's a word and I would totally encourage you to have a word for the year or for a chapter. Um, yeah, and I have a new word every track season it feels like and and I always know when it's time to move on to another word when I can look back on the other word and say, yeah, I did that well consistently over this period of time. And so the word joy for me was my freshman and most of sophomore year. And clearly like that word like took me a while to like grasp. Um, and so, but then my other word like hope was in between then and that was a little shorter. So just, it's just fun to have a word and to represent the season of life that you're in. When you were talking about the past there, I was reminded of a quote that I came across, I think mid last year, and it stuck with me for like a month or two. I really was like chewing on it, thinking about it. Um, and the quote was, the past is a place of reference, not a place of residence. I think there is a lot of scriptural oh, ties there, as you kind of said um, mm -hmm. in your answers. But I think it is so true. I think so many people reside in the past and it kind of eats at them and, and it um, prohibits them from actually taking meaningful action in the present because they're stuck on the past instead of learning from the past and referencing it as a means to take action in the present moment. So many people, I think, like legitimately ruin their lives by just reflecting and living in yes. the past all the time. What are your thoughts on that quote? Yes. Oh my gosh, a thousand percent in agreement. There's a stat that resentment is actually the leading cause of divorce. Hmm. And I totally believe it because resentment is living in the past and at, the, at its finest really in like allowing bitterness to fester from the past and I really do think that the key to joy is not sweating the past like you you really can't change it it's out of your control and as a control freak I um, don't love that about the past <laughs> but I'm 100% in agreement with that quote and think that it's good to appreciate and look back and reflect to the extent that it helps you move forward and a lot of people can internalize things from the past or just, yeah, I, I think I think that's all I have to say. I love it. Going back a little bit to the beginning of this conversation, talking about the holidays, Christmas, I'm curious, what does your training look like during the period of being back home? And how do you make sure you're still putting in the necessary work while also enjoying family and not taking away from time with them? It's a great question. I have been training with my... I guess he was my high school coach, but I started training with him when I was 11 years old for club. And so every break I go home and it's like seeing an old friend and he knows me better than I know himself. I know him better than he knows himself probably. Um, and so it's honestly a joy to come home and train. Um, just like I, we, I call it home cooking, like just the food that home just tastes so much better, you know? So I, it's really easy for me to get excited about training um, when I can do um, when I can train with him. And there's also some collegiate athletes from across the nation that come home to train um, with him as well. So um, every 
Christmas break, I'll be training with other D1 Power 5 track athletes, which is awesome just for that accountability. And it is really hard to train by yourself over break. Um, the other thing about break that I would say is great for training is that it allows for variety, um, which is so important to mental health in the sport of track and field. Like, like my warm up is like the same thing. Like, and I've been probably doing the same warm up for 10 years of my life. So five days for 10 years, it's just a lot of times doing the same rep over and over. And so just simply getting on a different track, it feels so good for my mental health. And then also just like, it allows you a little bit of flexibility Christmas Eve or Christmas day. Um, I'm a weirdo. I run the 400 meters, so you don't need to know how crazy I am. You already can guess, but <laughs> the, my Christmas gift to myself every year is running hills at my grandma's house. She has this like mile long driveway and there's a, like a probably hundred meter portion that's super steep. And I mean, I have the best childhood memories from running or from driving up that driveway. Um, I would, we would drive 16 hours from Colorado to her house in San Diego um, every Christmas. And so the end of that 16 hours, the last little stretch of that drive is that driveway on the other side with my family and Christmas. And so that driveway just means so much to me and it represents so much joy and excitement. And I also just love running hills. And so just like taking the chance to, um, to, yeah, like, treat myself have fun with a workout it's not on my program but it's going to do more good for me than anything on my program simply in terms of the joy that it brings and then to answer your question about training with family um yeah there's a balance and just i would say like um it's good to plan out your workouts but like don't let them dictate the rest of your break for me and my dad ever since I started track when I was eight years old has come to every single practice except college obviously in high school but um once I came back from once I start coming back from college like he will be at um the track with me and so just like incorporating training and family time together also is a great way to balance that um and then yeah I've been actually like listening to music at the track this break and that's really helped um just like sometimes it gets a little boring or lonely or like hard to stay motivated when you are training by yourself and doing those hard workouts so I found that the music relaxes my mind it gets me out of my head because I am like so into cues and okay foot strike this punch the ground swing down with your arms like literally I think so much and when I come home, like I can just put my thoughts away, close them in the drawer back at Stanford. And so the music also helps just like not, I just like haven't been thinking on the track and it's been, it's been really nice. Distance runners, as I'm sure, you know, from Stanford or even Valor, like I feel like we train at least six days a week and it's like easy runs most of the week, just like base mileage. And then like two days a week, it'll be like a workout one day a week is maybe a long run. And then that like seventh day is either completely off or like super easy jog. Is it a similar structure for sprinters? And part of me, I literally know nothing about sprint training, which is what <laughs> I'm asking. Is it similar for sprinters where it's like you're doing something every single day? Most of those days are like easier. And then a few days it's intentional, hard efforts. What does kind of the structure look like? Is it a similar schedule to distance runners or is it like completely different? Yeah, I can't 
speak on sprint training for everyone. I've experienced two training programs, my Stanford training program and then my high school training program. Um, and I would say that generally it's quite different, um, especially in terms of my high school training program. It would be like one or two hard days in terms of like a hard workout and then one or two days of um, like sprinting. And I would say that my Stanford training program follows a pretty similar thing. We'll go Mondays, Excel, Tuesdays, Tempo slash Lactate, depending on the time of season. And then Wednesday is always our recovery day. Thursday is another little speed day. And then Friday is another hard workout. Um, so I would say, and then we have weekends off, thank God. Um, we'll do recovery on the weekends. We'll do recovery on Wednesdays. So, but it's pretty different um, in terms of, in it's different from distance in the sense that we have a lot more downtime because when we do go, it's usually 100%. And so we have to kind of counterbalance that with 0%. Right. Whereas I feel like distance is somewhere in yeah, we're weird. in between. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so those recovery days, what do those look like for you? Is it a lot of like Norma teching, massaging, uh, foam rolling? Is it like completely off doing nothing? What does that kind of balance look like? It depends on the week for sure. So Wednesday recovery days have ranged for me anywhere from swimming. Uh, we'll do a 30 minute pool workout. It could be just swimming. It can be like running in the pool, a skips, plyos. Those are my favorite or pool plyos. Um, or we'll do bikes. We'll do a long run. We'll do strides. Um, sometimes it's just med ball. Sometimes it's just um, like a lift. And then on the weekends, I generally take at least one of the days completely off. And at Stanford, we are in a unique position. When you think about the stress put on your body, um, for your average or a general student athlete, you just think about like the physical stress. And so one thing that my coaches at Stanford have been realizing and starting to prioritize is that we have to accommodate for a lot of other stress on our body um that Stanford students place on themselves or that the academics place on us but I mean my teammates and I obviously the school aspect that puts a lot of stress on us but then at the same time like I have an internship um some of my my, my teammates were just studying for the LSAT and so there's just things like that that our coaches are starting to realize we need to take into account and so our rest days on the weekends are honestly rest like completely from track sometimes because we have to, um, you know, accommodate for, for the other stress that our bodies are being put under. Is it hard then on Monday getting way back in the swing of things, zero to a hundred after two days off, or does it kind of come natural specifically after going through that routine so many times? The routine helps. And I think it depends on the Monday. There are some Mondays where I'm still sore from that Friday workout. Oh, and I'm oh. like, dang, I wish I shook out a little bit more yesterday. But mentally, it's it's not hard. It's kind of almost like you're so refreshed that you're ready to attack another week. You've mentioned mental health a few times. You're someone I'm comfortable enough opening this can of worms with, and I think you'll have really good insights on it. Um, if you don't want to speak on specific things, that's fine. But Stanford, I feel like, has been a hot topic in a lot of circles that I've been in. I'm close with a ton of alumni from Stanford, a ton of Stanford athletes currently. Um, and it's I'm probably going to annoy some people in the administration if they <laughs> listen to this. But Stanford seems historically across all sports 
that it is just extremely difficult to prioritize the athlete's mental health because, in my opinion, it's the only university in the country that excels both academically and athletically. There are schools that are amazing academically, like a Harvard, but don't even come close to you guys athletically. There are other schools, like the Pac-12 schools, where they're incredible athletically, but like academically, it's kind of a joke. What are your thoughts, <laughs> just to get the conversation kicked off, on like Stanford mental health, how it's dealt with, et cetera? Wow quite the can of worms that we just opened but i'm excited <laughs> to dive in with you um i think that i would say i would preface whatever i say is like it's so individual that i can't speak for the university or all of our student athletes um myself but i think that currently and i've been blessed to not struggle um with mental health it's not something that that's not a battle that I have faced, um, but I know it has been faced by my teammates. And and I my freshman spring was, um, unfortunately, when we lost Katie Meyer, she was our goalkeeper to suicide on the women's soccer team. And I was extremely close with the soccer girls. I still am extremely close to them. So one of my best friends was her best friend. And so just like being that close to, um, to someone that is directly impacted like that, I could see the magnitude of the mental health issue. Um, and there's so many facets to it in the sense that there's a Stanford Hates Fund <laughs> campaign or whatever um, through the student body basically saying that Stanford perpetuates the mental health crisis on campus by limiting social activities like at the sororities, frats, that kind of stuff. And then um, depression is high on campus as it is at all um, high academic institutions for some reason. Um, I'm sorry. I'm just kind of like circling this mentally, trying to like no, you're collect good. my thoughts. Um, so the question is, what is... I mean, I didn't really case? ask a specific question. I was just asking for like, because I think what whatever you say will like open up the conversation. Um, okay. Like, what are your just general thoughts on mental health at Stanford would be what I'd say, if you have a response. Okay. I think I think that Stanford is taking steps to mitigate some of the fundamental, systematic, whatever you want to call it. Just like the nature of Stanford as an elite institution creates an environment that is prone to mental health issues. But at the same time, Stanford is taking steps in working hard to combat that, especially in the athletic department. And with our move to the ACC, that is more time on airplanes, less time in class, and less times with our friends on campus. And so, of course, it, it could definitely take a mental health toll on our student athletes in the sense that you're not engaging in community um, you're adding stress to them um, in terms of academics and then less sleep on those long travel trips. So it just kind of creates a, a big combination of risk for student athletes in mental health. But at the same time, Stanford is equipping themselves with resources. Um, and as we our budget obviously had to grow for these types of expenses and traveling to the ACC. But part of that additional um, room in our budget has been allocated to increase mental health resources. So I am confident that Stanford knows the 
risk that they are taking and are trying to equip themselves and prepare themselves, arm themselves for battle, I would say. I was talking to um, a Stanford alumni. I'll keep them private for the sake of about to share their message, uh, anonymity. And they we were talking about it and they said, uh, and I'll just quote them. They said, unfortunately, mental health issues were rampant at Stanford, particularly in the athletes. I think it has something to do with the pressure to achieve insanely high expectations, perfectionism, and the difficult and lonely and the difficult and lonely transition to college. What are your thoughts on those points? And do you think that's why you see higher mental health issues at Stanford, where it's like the perfectionism in both athletics and academics, as I was kind of sharing in my question a little bit ago, makes it unique from other schools? A thousand percent. Yeah, I think perfectionism is the enemy of, of joy. And there's a there's a quote by, um, oh gosh, I don't know. I, I'm so sorry. I'm going to have to. <laughs> Everyone says it, it goes back stuff. to Churchill. So we'll just say Churchill. <laughs> oh, Roosevelt. My bad. Close sorry. enough. Sorry, Teddy. Um, that comparison is the thief of joy. And I think that is especially the case at Stanford because you are surrounded by the cream of the crop, people who worked their tails off, did incredible things, um, like net worth of 23 million as a freshman and in college, things like that, that you're surrounded by that. And so it's super easy to compare yourself and tell yourself that you have to compete with that and keep pushing yourself to yeah, to perform, to be perfect. And obviously we know that perfection doesn't exist, um, but trying to be perfect does not allow room for grace. And I think grace, giving yourself grace is the most important thing. Yeah, I think not allowing yourself to fail sometimes. It's interesting because Silicon Valley is a is known to be a culture of failure. Um, and especially in VC firms, because if you fail two startups, you're a much more desirable candidate for whatever job at a VC firm or, or anything. And so um, there's a sense in Silicon Valley that failure is good, but then at Stanford, failure is like fatal. And there's that misconception that you can't fail because no one else is failing and everyone else is succeeding and you got to compete. And once again, that comparison is the thief of joy. So I would say that the culture of consistently striving, not letting yourself rest, not letting yourself take off the brakes or take your foot off the gas. um, Yeah, all contribute to definitely a, a dangerous storm. How has your faith personally helped you kind of weave through some of the natural issues of mental health. I think when you break it down at its core of like what triggers mental health, obviously very individualistic, different for a lot of people. But at least for me personally, I think my faith has played a massive role in that. For you, what are your thoughts on your faith kind of helping to guide you through some difficulties, whether it's in mental health or something completely different that you face on a day-to-day basis in college? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it goes back to that quote that you read about perfectionism and for me I am very self-motivated I put a lot of pressure on myself um, to be perfect and so that is nice in the sense that um, it's not external motivation or external pressure Um, but it allows me to kind of take 
um, my own like viewpoint on the matter. But I would say that in the spirit of Christmas too, Jesus Christ came and was born as a baby, but he was fully man and fully God, which is the hypostatic union and is a theological concept that I won't get into. But because he was fully man, um, allows us to relate to him because we are fully man. And so he came and lived the perfect life, literally perfect, never sinned. If he came and lived a perfect life, um, essentially I tell myself, so I don't have to. And that's what the beauty of Christmas was. That gift that we received in the manger that Christmas night, us not having to perform, that gift was not was us not having to earn our love or earn our salvation because eventually that little baby would grow up to take our sins on the cross. And so for me, knowing that Jesus lived the perfect life so I don't have to has been vital in giving myself the grace to fall short, to fail. And yeah, I, so I would say that's how my faith has helped me in terms of mental health. And um, also like comparison is the thief of joy going back to that and just being content in who God made you to be. And I think knowing that um, having a framework that every person is made in the image of God and that you are a child of God and um, just like having that as part of your identity doesn't allow room for you to look at other people to inform that identity because when you are so secure on and who you are as a person and as a child of God that you don't look towards um, other people to tell you what to believe about yourself. You look to the Bible and to what God says you about you. I'm curious to get your thoughts on faith in relation to, and you kind of touched on this a little bit, but going deeper, faith in relation to falling short. And what I mean by that is a lot of athletes, and we may have talked about this on your podcast, but a lot of athletes, like when they fail because their sport is their whole world and whole identity, because it's their whole identity, it's an attack on them as a person. And they really don't know where to go Mm -hmm. to because their whole world and identity is based on this kind of fleeting activity as amazing as running in track and field and marathons are. Um, For me in my life, um, I definitely have experienced that where like my whole identity has been running an injury pops up and it's like crushing beyond measure. I'm sure people can relate to that. But then as my faith started to grow, running became something I did, not who I was. And who I was was so secure in God that running was just like, yeah, this sucks. It's unfortunate. It's something I care about, but it's not everything I am. And my maturation, uh, even though it's still continuing a long way to go in the faith has been so pivotal in handling setbacks, not just in running, but other aspects of my life for you. How critical has that been specifically in like a higher stakes, higher pressure kind of situation division one at Stanford, how critical has your faith been in terms of handling setbacks, identity, all of that sort of stuff. Infinitely. Yeah. You bring up a really good point. And thank you for coming on my podcast and we did talk about that and so yeah i have a podcast called the plus podcast which is um a podcast that shows and tells the stories of faith and athletics for various student athletes so the plus comes from uh symbolism in student athlete there's a dash between the word student and athlete and that kind of represents the horizontal balance between school and sport and so we added a vertical line that represents that relationship between the student athlete and a higher power in that student athlete pursuing God vertically in that relationship. And so that dash or the vertical line create a plus. And so plus the plus plod 
showcases student plus athletes that do that do pursue um, God in their sport and place their identity in God. And so if you ever want to hear more about how to place your identity in God in your sport and hear from dozens of athletes who went through the same exact process, that is the podcast for you essentially. But and it comes up over and over and over again. Everyone, a lot of the athletes we talked to have just had this like shift or sometimes it was a shift. Sometimes it was a long period of growth and placing their identity in God. And no one ever perfectly does place their identity in God consistently every single day. Um, and so sometimes we have to go through things that remind us to go back and, and place our identity in God. And that's where that injury comes in. Um, there's a joke and I am the co-president of Fellowship of Christian Athletes here at Stanford. And we have a joke that we roll our eyes where there's another identity talk, because if someone comes up and starts talking about placing their identity and God, we're like, oh, here we go again. Like, that's just kind of like sport brings you to that, whether it's through failure or through injury. There's just like, like consistently time and time again, you will have to look in the mirror and see who you are without sport or who you are in failure, who you are without straight A's for my nerves at Stanford. And what's left when you strip those things away is who God says you are. And so identity is just a huge theme in Christian athletics. And I'm so glad you asked me about it. And for me personally, it's in terms of the identity, that's been more of something that I faced a lot in high school. Um, But then moving on to Stanford, which I think was your specific question, I would say it's been learning to place my joy in the Lord and not necessarily in my success because I have had two really hard, unhealthy, and quite frankly, so slow seasons. Like I've performed um, just like nowhere near what I can and should be performing at. Um, And so thank God that I do have my identity in the Lord because, oh my gosh, the athlete that I am is not the athlete that got into Stanford and is not the athlete. Um, Like I've told this story before, but when I was a sophomore in high school and reached out to the Stanford coaches that first time last summer, I said, hey, like, this is who I am. I would have placed ninth or whatever at the Pac-12 championships as a sophomore in high school. And the last two years, um, now that I am at Stanford, I haven't even made the bus to go to the airport to go to the Pac-12 championships. And so that has been heartbreaking, but it hasn't been devastating to my identity. It's it's sad because I love my sport and I want to do well, but it doesn't threaten my self-worth and my um yeah, and my my confidence and know that I'm still valuable, I am still loved. Um, and no performance, no seat on the trip to the Pac-12 championship, no PR is going to change how loved I am. Um, there's a quote in Jaira, which is one of my favorite worship songs that says, I'll never be more loved than I am right now. And whenever you say that, you can say that I could have said that on the top of the podium at state or after I broke state records, or I could say that when I'm sitting at home watching my teammates race to the Pac-12 championships. Um, Wherever you say that, it's always going to be true because God's love is so infinite for us that no earthly circumstance is going to make that statement like false, if that makes sense. So 
that has been the biggest thing. And, and so finding joy in the Lord and in my challenges has been the theme, which is why I said that my word for uh, my most of my collegiate career has been joys because um, how do I take like track makes me so happy. I am so passionate about it. I love it, which I thank God every day because there's a lot of people who are stuck in sports that they don't like or don't think are fun. So I'm blessed to be so in love with my sport, but at the same time, that makes it all the more heartbreaking when I am injured, when I am super sick and can't compete. And so just being joyful in those circumstances and joyful in the Lord has been the key for me, I guess. And um, that's kind of how to tie in your identity question. I've faced that at Stanford. How do you maintain like the belief that one day you'll not only get back to where you were, but get back to a place that you've always dreamed of being in the midst of the difficulty of not being there quite yet? I'm specifically curious to ask you this question in relation to like, I think a lot of times, um, I'm sure you've felt this on your own podcast in a unique way. Like you think of the listener as a specific thing. Like in my mind, I'm like, the listener is crushing training right now. They're training to break some record, win some state title. But like factually, a good portion of our listeners are probably in the same boat you are or you were. And so I think it's important to ask these questions because whatever your response is going to be will probably resonate with a lot of people. So true. So the question is, like, how do I... How do you maintain that, that belief? Like, yeah, how do you maintain that okay. belief that one day you'll get back to where you were, but not just get back to where you were, like get back to new heights? Yeah, it's a great question. So I look to the Bible. I'm a Christian. I'm a believer. So that's what makes it easy for me to do so and maintain that belief. I look at the book of Job, um, which is not an easy book to read in the Bible. And it's honestly just full of so much hopelessness, which is how I felt my freshman and most of my sophomore seasons on the track was just hopeless because I used to put hope in my body and my legs and my speed. And now like those things are failing me. And so, um, that is kind of what is a theme in the book of Job. Job is the most successful, wealthy man to have ever walked the earth at the time when this book was written in the Bible. And and Satan walks to God one day and asks God, like, or says God, hey, he's only so faithful to you because Job was also a very righteous man. And Satan told God, Job is only this righteous because he has everything going right for him. Like, he's got the perfect life. And so God permits Satan to test Job. And so like in a matter of a few pages of your Bible, Job loses everything, all of his um, livestock, all of his children. Um, He's a sick man, which to me was kind of like what felt like my freshman, sophomore year. I lost so much. I um, had mold poisoning, tore my hamstring. Um, I lost my, the things that made me succeed and get to Stanford. Um, And so in the middle of the book, um, basically Job is questioning God, like, God, why did this happen to me? And I think that to be completely real, it is so difficult to maintain your, um, to maintain that belief that everything is going to work out. And so I'm not going to say that you can willpower your way into it. And I actually had this realization last night as I was journaling, but I've had like three seasons of my life of loss, tragedy, disappointment, whatever you want to call it. 
And the first season I was when I was reading Job for the first time. And then that season I had head knowledge of what I was supposed to like say, think like, okay, this is what the Bible says about it. And then the second time I went through a challenge, this was like hamstring kind of thing. And last season, that second time, um, I was like, okay, I'm starting to believe that like what the Bible says is true. And then the third time I've experienced loss this last fall, um, quite recently, I've just been so joyful through it all. Um, obviously sad, but you can be sad and joyful at the same time because joy does not equal happiness. Joy is gladness, not based on circumstances. Happiness is gladness based on circumstances. So my circumstances, I was sad about, but I was joyful still. And so I was like, oh my gosh, finally, before the first time I went through this kind of stuff, I was okay, upset, not joyful, but I understood I needed to be joyful. The second time is like, I believed I could be joyful, but I couldn't truly live it out. And this third time is I'm experiencing that joy in the midst of that, um, that loss and circumstances. So to answer your question, what changed from that first, second and third time? And how do I believe that, um, that I will get back to where I was, if not more is also back in the book of Job at the end of all this questioning, all the suffering that Job goes through, he would rather be dead. He was so hopeless. He was like, I'm done. Like there's no worth. It's, my life is not worth living is what he said. And at the end of the book, um, so spoiler alert, <laughs> um, God restored all of Job's blessings twofold. So basically, um, back in biblical historic context, if a thief stole something and was caught, they had to restore um, like double um, whatever they stole. And so here, there's a Bible verse that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy it. But Jesus comes that you may have life and life to the full. And so when Jesus died on the cross was when Jesus kind of restored and gave back everything that the devil stole from us um, in the fall. And so here in this book in Job, God restores all of Job's blessings. And so for me, maintaining the belief that my own joy will be restored has come from understanding that and knowing that um, just kind of like believing that, applying that to my life. Um, another, I'm so sorry, I'm on a tangent right now. Another verse that I'm loving recently, which is from Job, is that um, the Lord gives and the Lord takes, blessed be the name of the Lord. And so the true difference in my mind, they're numbered one, two, and three, but the true difference between two believing and three experiencing about joy, not based on circumstances, the difference there is blessing the name of the Lord, even when the Lord takes. And so, um, yeah, I had a losses this fall. The Lord took from me. But for the first time, as the Lord was taking from me, I could still say, blessed be the name of the Lord. And so I think now that I've experienced and lived out authentically that verse, I just like Job, it took Job saying, blessed be the name of the Lord when he gives and his takes. It takes him like kind of like surrendering that. And then God blesses him. God, and Job doesn't just like surrender and say, okay, you can give and take with knowledge that God is going to give back to him because Job has no idea. So you have to come to that point of, of surrendering and being content, even if it doesn't come back. If you're content with that, that's kind of the key, the pivot in the story and I believe in my life to then those things being restored. So 
wow, I can't believe I just that's no, been that on was my mind and incredible. Like, my journal. It's a lot messier in my journal, and I'm actually amazed that I could just get no, that, that out. No, that was very impressive. Moving from point to point, <laughs> I got to take notes uh, when I listen back. Camille, something I'm interested um, to hear about, I'll have to get you back on because I know there's so much we could talk about, but wrapping today's conversation up, you know, as someone who was incredibly successful in high school, now incredibly successful in college, making it to Stanford itself is uh, something many kids dream of, including myself a year ago. Shout out Dominic a year ago. Yeah. Um, I'm curious. <laughs> What do you think are the biggest things in your mind that contribute to being a successful athlete as someone who is undoubtedly successful? Thank you. I appreciate that. I would say hunger. That's the best thing I could say. Grit. Um, one of my favorite books is Grit by Angela Duckworth. And it's basically that combination of passion and perseverance um, like allows you to be successful and that combination of passion and perseverance is what she dubs grit but really just loving what you do and having that perseverance and in her book she talks about how grit is um, something that you can train and something that you can develop so if you don't feel like a gritty individual and you want to be successful I would point you to that book um, but for me grit has been something that I um I've had naturally. I'm super uh, persistent. I'm super hungry. And um, <laughs> one of my, when I have been running track since I was eight years old and I started off pretty bad. Like I would lose races consistently. Um, I don't, like, I don't, I was crying every time I towed the line. Like, I don't know why I ran, but I just loved it. And so I stuck with it. I had the passion for it and the perseverance for whatever reason. And as I got older, I started running better. I finally qualified for USATF regionals. And so my first USATF regionals um, are not my first, but I eventually like starting to go consistently to regionals nationals. And, and one of my dear friends, her grandpa um, told my parents, well, your daughter uh, may not be very talented, but she has a lot of heart. And that is what that grandpa told my parents and for a while like offended me like hey like (laughs) I'm not don't tell me I'm not talented like I'm I'm the one whatever I got third at USATF regionals when I was 11 12 whatever the age was and so um but he was so right like he he watched me from the time I was eight to whatever old I was then there like completely change as not change but like he saw my heart and my effort being consistently put into and finally succeeding. So that was when I was 12. And then um, a few weeks after um, my state meet my senior year of high school, at this point, I had won the 100 and 200. I have had all my state records in the relays or whatever. We were undefeated in our league and in the state when I was in high school. And I am so blessed that to taste that um, success. But my high school coach, I stood up in front of my whole team. We had this banquet at the end of the year with all the parents. And my coach said, <laughs> I think it was something along the lines that this is the least talented state champion I've ever had. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, thank you so much for that. But I mean, and I think I don't, I'm not going to comment on my talent level, but I will comment on that. I am the hardest worker in the room and consistently give a hundred percent in practice 
And so just giving that grit and giving something passion and perseverance will take you a really long way. Final serious question for you, Camille. For those who have listened to our conversation today, what would be the final takeaway message you want to leave with them specifically in the context? Let's speak to the individual with that context. Final message for the listener. But let's talk to the listener who kind of had a rough year last year and they made all these plans and they're like, I want to become a new individual in 2024. What would be the message to those people who want to make 2024 the year where they turn their life around and start to build their legacy? Okay. I would answer with a quote slash a spinoff of a quote, but the quote is, I don't know what tomorrow holds, but I know who holds tomorrow. And your circumstances might not have been exactly what you wanted in 2023. And the reality is we can't control our circumstances in 2024. No matter what we wrote down our New Year's resolutions is that there's external things that um, that we can't control. And so there's going to be disappointments in life. And so the key is not manifesting perfection in your life, but it's you can't learn, you can't stop the waves, but you can learn to surf. It's one of my favorite quotes. And so to me, learning to surf is learning to be content in any situation. And that's going to be how you can look back in 2025 on 2024 and say, regardless of what happened, regardless if you got your goals or not, that you can be content. And for me, I'm, I would just say the only way to do that is by finding our contentment in God and having a relationship with him. And so Religion isn't for everyone, but God is. And so I would just say that's one way to ensure that you can look back on 2024 with contentment is not by controlling your circumstances or having perfect circumstances, but having joy despite those circumstances. I love it. Camille, one final question for you. The question I ask every guest on every single episode, if you had Gordon Ramsay coming over to your house for dinner, what would you choose to make for him? (laughs) I... I'm a quesadilla girl. I will make egg and cheese quesadillas, shake and ground beef, you know, but I don't think that that would impress Gordon Ramsay. So I am going to go with something that I think is one of my specialties um, that you can't really screw up, but you can like make some, you know, uh, make an impression is I grill my pizza. So I'll take like mm. pizza dough, make pizza and then put it on the barbecue. And it just like, I love it. And I feel like that's, you know, a little bit of a unique spin. So I think that that's what I would go with. Boom. Camille, appreciate you coming on the podcast. Finally made it happen. Finally one in the books, hopefully many more in the future. Um, But appreciate specifically your openness and vulnerability to speak on a plethora of subjects and the audience who listens to me regularly will know um, that I'm more comfortable with you than a lot of guests with how long my questions were and open-ended and serious at times. Uh, So I appreciate you coming on, the wisdom you shared, and excited to see you crush it in 2024. So appreciate it. Thanks, Dom. Thanks for having me. I think you're great too. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of the podcast. I don't take your time for granted, so I hope that it brought you some wisdom and value that you can apply directly into your running and into your life. If you have not already done so, please consider giving us a follow and a five-star review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And then something all of you guys can do is share today's episode or the podcast in general with a friend or someone who you think will benefit from it. One more note, if you're not already following us on Instagram, consider doing so. My Instagram tag is at The Running Effect. I hope your running and life is going well. I appreciate you taking time out of your busy life to listen to today's episode. I will catch you in two days when the next episode drops. Until then, happy running.